I am amped up from that worship, I'll tell you what, man. Um, I got a lot to cover today, so you're going to have to listen really fast. Okay, can you do that with me uh, this morning? Um, so grab your Bibles. We're going to dive right in. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 again. As Chris said earlier, um, uh, or, or, let me back up. Sorry, I'm just getting ahead of myself this morning. Welcome to Harvest. We're glad you're here. We love you, and we love God's words. We want to do this this morning, okay? So grab your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one somewhere there around you on the floor. There's a black one. You can grab one of those. Um, and we're actually not going to start in Matthew 5. I'm going to start somewhere else, but we're going to get there eventually. So stick your notes in there or stick a little bookmark in there, and I'll give you some other scriptures to look up here in a second as well. And so as Chris said, we started this new series, Upside Down Kingdom, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and we started with Jesus telling us who we are. Right, that we are children of God. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, man, you are his child. And, and because of that, you are assigned some things and, and, and you get some things and you have some privileges and you have some hope and you have some forgiveness and you have all this stuff that he gives to you as his child. But then the second part we're moving into now, the Sermon on the Mount, is what, he's, what he calls us to do because of everything that he's given us, right? So this is how we live out who we are in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to be looking at that today and uh, how do we fight in this war as warriors of the king in the spiritual war that's going on all around us. So let me start with this. Anybody remember the name Aaron Ralston? Does that ring a bell for anybody? You'll probably remember his story. Back in 2003, this was the guy that was hiking through the Blue John Canyon in Utah, a very remote area. Um, and he's hiking through, and he's going down through this slot canyon, and he had to kind of suspend himself down off this boulder to get down to the lower part of the canyon. And while he's hanging, the boulder comes loose and rattles down both sides of the canyon and pins his right arm in the canyon between him and the boulder. And so he immediately starts, you know, trying to use the adrenaline he has to, to get out and, and screaming and yelling and trying to find some way to break free from this thing. And it's just not happening. And nobody knew he was hiking that day. He hadn't told anybody where he was going or what he was doing. And so the, he knew that nobody was going to come looking for him. And it was a very small, remote part of the canyon that nobody was going to see him just by happenstance. And so he was stuck there. And he knew that if he didn't get free somehow, he would die right there in that canyon. And so after about five days, he finally got the guts up, I guess, to take out a dull pocket knife and to cut off his own forearm to get free from the canyon. He then hiked out, rappelled down 70 yards, and then hiked out three hours before he was picked up by helicopter. So I want you to just imagine for a second, putting yourself, put that last picture up there of him. This is him now with the uh, no arm on the right side there. Imagine, put yourself in his shoes for a second. Could you do that? Could you take a knife and cut off one of your own limbs if it meant you had a chance to live again? that you actually got to have life beyond this if you're willing to cut off and lose one of your limbs? Interestingly enough, that's the exact same analogy or picture that Jesus is going to use in the text today when he says, listen, I've got a better life for you, but in order to get there, you might have to cut some things off. You might have to take extreme action and actually get rid of some things that are pretty valuable to you. Okay? And what we're going to see here as we dive into this text is he's talking, as you can see in your notes, about lust. And he urges us to cut off lust from our lives so we can finally truly live the way we were designed to live. And so here's the main idea today as we walk through these, this text. 
deep intimacy with my spouse requires amputating lust from my life. Deep intimacy, true fullness of intimacy that God has for us with our spouse only comes as we cut off, as we amputate lust from our life. And please don't zone me out if you're not married. I'm not talking about only current spouses. I'm talking about future spouses as well, all right? Um, this applies for all of us in various ways. Today, as you're going to see as we walk through the text. So this is important um, that we all grasp this. But this topic we have in front of us is a massive topic in our culture. Sex and lust and adultery, like this is a big issue all around us, and it is wreaking havoc on our society in many, many ways. And so before we can just dive straight into Jesus' teaching here, I feel like we need to kind of pull back and kind of get a 50,000-foot view of what is God's view of sex, right? Like before we can get into the nitty-gritty stuff, like we need to first know, how does God see this? What, what does God think about sex in general? And uh, once we establish that, then we can compare what God says about it to what our culture says about it. And then maybe we'll be ready to receive Jesus' teaching today. So with that in mind, the first point you're going to see there is um, that we need to receive sex as a gift from God. We need to receive sex as a gift from God. You see, sex was actually God's idea. I know for some people that's really strange to think about, like when you think about sex and God in the same like, sentence, but sex was actually God's idea. When God created, remember, he created everything out of nothing, right? He created all of creation out of nothing, and he created, at the end of the week, he created man and woman, and it says that he brought the two of them together, and he gave them to one another, and, he said, and they were naked and unashamed. And then, in Genesis 1.28, this will be on the screen for you, it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over ever, every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, God's first major instruction to the very first two humans was be fruitful and multiply. Right? It was God's idea. I, I, I think, I'm look, looking around, I'm pretty sure everyone in the room, we all know how humans multiply. Everybody good with that? Like, I don't have to explain that this morning. Like, we're not gremlins. You don't just pour water on us and we just start, like, like, we all know how the multiplication thing works, right? God decided that it was going to work that way. God designed it to work that way, right? This was his plan. He made sex. He wired men a certain way. He wired women a certain way so that this would happen. All the, the physics of it, all the biology of it, all of that was his planning his creation. Sex was God's idea. And some people have taken this verse to then claim that, okay, yeah, God created it, but he only created it for procreation, right? Like that's why he gave it to us was to be fruitful and multiply. And so anything beyond that means is um, not appropriate. And, and I have a real problem with that. Um, I actually have several problems with that. But one primary problem with that, which is the Bible doesn't say that. And so I want you to turn with me. If you've got your Bibles, flip back to Song of Solomon, chapter 7. I just want to illustrate for you just briefly this morning why I want to challenge that presupposition today. If you don't know where that's at, if you've never read that book, go to the middle of your Bible, go slightly to the right, you'll find Song of Solomon. This isn't one that gets opened a lot in church. I'm just being honest with you, okay? Song of Solomon, chapter 7. This is actually a book, of, a collection of writings that Solomon wrote to his beloved, King Solomon. He starts off like this in chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter! 
Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Um, some of you are probably thinking, like, that doesn't sound real great right now. Like, that's not, that doesn't sound too flattering. You have to have a little contextualization here, right? Like, this would have been, like, major uber romantic uh, to Solomon's girl back then, you know. Um, but, guys, if you're wanting to impress your lady, I wouldn't go straight to this, right? Like, you might want to switch it up a little bit, like the rounded thighs and the, the belly, a heap of weed. That's probably not going to play well for you, okay? So, like, find a, a better way to express what you're trying. But, but for him, this was, like, this was nailing it, okay? Verse 3, your two breasts are like two pawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. I would stay away from that one too, guys. Um, your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in, in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. I'm going to stop right there because I'm already starting to blush a little bit up here. Um, that's in the Bible. Anybody else follow me on this? Like, like God chose to put that in the sacred literature of his people, all right? Which tells me that God doesn't just view sex only for reproduction, he views it for pleasure, right? It's both. It's both. And God gave this to his people as a gift. God is not anti-sex. God is pro-sex, right? He's not trying to steal something from you. He's not trying to take something from you. He's not trying to keep you from something that's great. What the Bible is trying to do in terms of sex is trying to teach you how to use it and view it correctly, right? Because God also knows that not only is it a beautiful gift, but used incorrectly, Sex is very dangerous and very damaging. And he's trying to protect his people from being hurt by this great gift that he's entrusted to them. The other thing that the Bible teaches us about sex is that sex is more than sex, right? It's more than just the physical act, if you will. Verse here for you, Genesis 2, 24, this will be on the screen. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that term there, one flesh, is super important. It's not talking about just becoming one flesh physically, although that's part of it. It's also becoming one flesh in every part of our beings, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. It's the, the, the Hebrew word, actually, for, for marital connective sex is dad. All right, that's the Hebrew word for, for that. And, and that word literally translated means a mingling of souls. It means the coming together of two souls of people that happens through this physical act that they are brought together as one flesh. That's what God's intention is. And when we try to take sex and we try to, to divorce the physical from all of the emotional and spiritual and relational aspects, we set ourselves up for huge harm not only to our bodies and to our relationships, but to our own souls. And God's saying, I don't want that for you. I have something better for you. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 15, he says this, 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. There's the quote. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here's the key part. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is the only sin in the entire Bible that says it's against your own body. Because he's getting down to this essence of the sole issue of sex, right? Like, when I choose to use sex outside of the bounds, outside of the guardrails that God has created, which is marital covenant relationship, when I go outside of that, I actually damage my own body. I damage my own soul because I'm using it in a way. But the good news about this is sex is so much more than our culture says it is. That's actually a really good news, right? That it's so much more than what our society tries to say it is. It's meant to be experienced in marital covenant. And when it's experienced in marital covenant between two people, it actually becomes very uh, fulfilling. It becomes, it builds intimacy. It, it, it connects two people in a way that nothing else can. And when I say marital covenant, let me just be clear what we're talking about here, okay? Because again, even marriage in our society today has gotten so twisted in so many ways. Marital covenant is this. Two people coming together and saying, I am for you. I am with you. I am all in, no matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter what changes, no matter what circumstances there are, no matter what happens to you or your body or anything else, this is it. I am all in forever, right? Even if we never get to the physical, I'm not going anywhere. When we have a marital covenant like that, then sex becomes the dessert to the meal that is relational intimacy, right? It's a great part, but it's just the best part on top of what you're already developing. When we try to take sex and we try to divorce it from the rest of the relational connectedness that God has for it, when we try to do it outside of marital covenant, it becomes destructive and damaging. It becomes me using you to satisfy my desires without any concern for your ongoing well-being. It becomes a steady diet of sugar that leaves us, it gives you that momentary high, but leaves you empty and malnourished and just lacking in every way. Outside of God's design, sex is terribly destructive, but inside the parameters that God has set, it is one of the greatest gifts that he's ever given us. That's how God views sex. Now, obviously the culture would disagree, right? Our society would maybe even scoff at much of what I'm saying right now and say it's old-fashioned and it's outdated and and that's not really what it is anymore. So let's just kind of step back from the Bible for a second. Let's just take their argument on its own grounds, okay? So just looking at society and the evidence around you, I'll ask you this. You know, we've been in this new sexual ethic in our culture now for a good 20 or 30 years, right? Has this increased liberty and freedom to have sex with whoever we want, whenever we want, wherever we want, has that increased or decreased human flourishing? Are our marriages stronger and better today because of it? 
Are our families safer and stronger because of it? Right? Is our sexual identity any more clear or is it more distorted today than it was before? Right? Are things actually getting better as a result of us pursuing this? Have sex crimes increased or decreased? Are people finally satisfied and fulfilled because they get to have this with anyone they want? Is that really helping them? No. Even modern day psychologists, doctors, scientists who have nothing to do with Christianity would tell you, no, it's not. And this is why it's now getting flipped for it's no longer about frequency, now it's all about technique. Have you noticed this, right? More and more and more isn't getting us satisfied, so now it's not that you need to have more, you just need to have it better. So if you walk into any grocery store and look at any magazine in the aisle, men's, women's, doesn't matter, every magazine has at least one article on how to improve your technique so that it's better, so you can finally be fulfilled and you can finally be satisfied, and they're still selling you the same lie that they started with, that somehow sex divorced from intimate marital relationship is helpful and satisfying and fulfilling to your heart. It's just not. If sex is indeed a gift from God, then we have to receive it as a gift. And think about how you correctly receive a gift. Give me a gift. If you want to give me a gift, and I come and I just take it, and I run away with it, is that you giving me a gift? No, that's me stealing, right? That's me taking it before you give it to me. That's no longer a gift. It's now stolen goods. If we're going to receive this gift, we have to wait and receive it as God wants to give it to us, not when we want to take it. Right? Secondly, when someone gives you a gift, if you start to love that gift more than you love the giver of that gift, we now have a problem. Right? Because the gift isn't what's important. It's the heart behind the person giving it to you. And when we elevate the gift above the giver, it disconnects the relationship. And when I start to use the gift in a way contrary to the, the heart in which you gave it to me, I'm now disrespecting and neglecting the honor due the person who gave me the gift. And all those things are what we've done as a society with sex. We've taken it before it was supposed to have it. We've used it in a way other than the way it was given. And we've elevated it to become the most important thing. And it's ruining us. It's harming us. It's hurting us as a people, as a culture, as a society. I must receive sex as a gift, not worship it as a God. That's the key. That's God's view of sex. So with that on the table, let's now look at what Jesus is telling us here in this passage specifically, Matthew chapter 5. So if you got that, go ahead and flip over there. We're going to start in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here's the second point this morning. I need to reserve sex exclusively for my spouse. Reserve sex exclusively for your spouse. Jesus starts off with this same 
um, the same verbiage here as he did last week, right? You've heard it said this way, but I'm saying it to you this way, right? And we talked about last week, he's not changing the law here. He's not changing what God's word says. He's changing the interpretation of it. He's, I said last week, last week we said he's changing the scorecard on how we measure what we're talking about here. It's no longer just about the externals. It's now about the internals. It's not just about the behaviors. It's about the heart behind it, right? And so he goes after, the first thing he goes after here is adultery. Adultery is the, the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. And, and adultery it literally just means unfaithfulness to your spouse. Unfaithfulness to your spouse. That's the basic definition for adultery. He says here, but, but I say to you, anyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Lust is mental unfaithfulness to your spouse. It's mentally thinking and seeing and imagining and, 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 and going places in your mind that are not them. Right? And the reason Jesus drills down on this and connects it to adultery is because lust is the heart of adultery. It starts with the seeds of lust. It starts with looking and desiring and thinking, and then it eventually leads out of the heart and out of the mind into the behaviors. But he says here, those who look with lustful intent, which is kind of an interesting phrase. And so I just want to kind of define that. What's he really talking about there? Because that's going to help us then apply this teaching to us today. Here's the definition I'm going to give you. Lustful intent is this. To look upon a person sexually or emotionally in a way that, des that desires what you are not in covenant with them to get. Again, to look upon a person sexually or emotionally in a way the desires what you are not in covenant with them to get. I actually got that definition from Pastor Matt Chandler. In fact, I gleaned a lot from him for this message. He was super helpful. But in other words, what he's saying there is, listen, lustful intent is a desire to take what's not yours. Desire to take what is not yours by marital covenant. And in context here, obviously, Jesus is primarily pointing this at men but I think we can all agree today at this point in our society and culture, this applies to both men and women, maybe in slightly different ways, but it's both there. And so now I just want to look at what are, the, what are the two primary ways that lustful intent comes at us in our modern day culture? What are the two primary ways that we have to guard against and fight against and look out for lustful intent? And I would challenge the two primary ways we have today are pornography and fantasy. Pornography and fantasy. And some of you, I know you're already thinking like, okay, so what exactly does that mean? Like what's in that definition? Any illicit material, right? Some of you are like, okay, but what about like, let me just say this. If you're trying to really like hash out and get a fine line here, I'm already worried about you, right? Like, but just to be super clear, we're talking about images, we're talking about videos, we're talking about movies, we're talking about mail order magazines, we're talking about almost anything rated mature on Netflix, right? We're talking about romance novels, we're talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, we're talking about all of that. I could go on and on and on and on, unfortunately, right? Anything that creates an alternate reality where you desire something 
that isn't yours. Anything that puts that in your head, an image, a book, uh, a conversation that makes you start desiring something that's not yours by marriage. And here's the problem with pornography and fantasy is that it damages us as souls before the Lord. I'm going to give you three quick ways that I see that this happens for us. Number one, it dehumanizes us. You see, God gave us the gift of sex wrapped in a soul, right? He didn't just give us the physical act. It's wrapped in the soul of the person, and it's connected together. And even in marriage, even in marital covenant, your spouse is not an object for your satisfaction. They're there for you to build a relationship with and to love and to cherish and to grow together. They have a soul that you're supposed to be caring for. And the same is true for every man and every woman on that screen and in that magazine. That is a person that God created in his image with a soul that he cares about. And when we take advantage of that, we're dehumanizing them and we're dehumanizing us. I just want you to think about a second. Those people, at some point, those, that's somebody's sons and daughters, right? Like, I just think about my little girls, like, what in their life? What, <clears throat> what darkness had to befall them that they got to that point that that's okay, that they're willing to do that? And I know that in those moments, there's smiles and there's smug looks and there's all those things, but do not fool yourself. On the other side of that, there's hurt and pain and loss. And they've been dehumanized in the process. Second thing is pornography and fantasy, it rewires our brains. There's actually a guy there by the name of William Struthers. He's a biopsychologist, not a Christian to my knowledge, who has done tons and tons, I mean mountains of research on the effects of pornography and fantasy. And one thing that he's found is that as we use it, as you use it more and more, it creates pathways or trails or roads in your brain. And, and, the, and the brain just keeps trying to travel that same track over and over and over again. And you start to rewire your brain to believe that this is how sex is supposed to work. Through images and fantasy and all these things. And it, it literally addicts or hooks us on this need to go down this path. And there comes a point where people actually start to desire pornography and fantasy more than they even desire to be with a real person. Several years ago, there was an article, an interview with John Mayer in Playboy magazine. Um, not that I get that. Um, it was all over the internet. You can go research it right now and see it. But there was this interview where he talked about that he had, been, he had been using it for so long that he had come to the point where he now literally desired to just be at home with himself and pornography than be with a real woman. And I don't know if you remember some of the women he dated. Like... They were not hard to be attracted to. They were on magazine covers and movies and all this kind of stuff. It's not like, but his brain had been so rewired that he didn't even think straight about it anymore. I've been in counseling with married couples who have to go to this 
first before they can even be intimate with one another because their brain has been so wired to think that this is how it works. And it just runs to that shortcut over and over and over again. The third way that it damages us is that it robs us of joyful, loving relationships. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because unfortunately, this is your story. Your marriage has been wrecked by one or both spouses being stuck in lustful intent. The physical has been divorced from the spiritual and the emotional and the mental, and now you're living together pretty much as just convenient hookup partners from now and then without any real relational intimacy happening. And many of us struggle to ever get the kind of deep, joyful, committed relationships that God has for us because we become consumed with the physical and we forfeit all the other parts of intimacy. And I I used to only give these kind of talks to men, but unfortunately, that's not the way it plays out anymore. The fastest growing market for pornography is women. And our society and our culture has become, our brains have become so rewired and hooked on this that in America, in America, pornography now grosses more money every year than the three top professional sports combined. More money is spent on this than basketball, football, and baseball combined. Because it's come, it's dehumanized us, it's rewired us, it's, it's sucked us into the point where we can't even function without it as a people. I wish I could say um, that this, this was a principle that I had followed in my own dating life as a young man. Um, unfortunately, I can't profess that before you today. Um, but... I started dating when I was in middle school, dating. That's a really broad term at that point. Um, but, and I just became obsessed with it. Can be obsessed with girls and the game and the chase and the whole thing. And that was middle school and high school and college for me. And it was the same story every time, right? We'd start going out, we'd go out a couple times and pretty soon, two or three weeks in, things would start to get physical. And every single time things started to get physical, any attempt to continue to build the relationship emotionally or spiritually or mentally together, like all that got nixed. And it became all about just the physical. Every time, right? Thankfully, I had Christian parents who like pounded into my head as a young boy that sex is for marriage, sex is for marriage, sex is for marriage. And somehow I had twisted that in my brain to mean intercourse was for marriage and everything else was okay, which obviously is not true. So while I didn't go that far, I did plenty to damage my heart and my soul and the so many that I brought into that with me and I deeply regret. But every time it was the same way. When the physical started, everything else seemed to stop. And the physical side just became all-consuming because it was out of order. When we, get in fault, and when we get involved physically before God says to, we end up being consumed 
by the superficial experience and we never get to grow any deeper in our relationships. Same thing happens with pornography and fantasy and then ultimately even adultery if it gets to that point. We start to realize that it's so much easier and a lot less work to just run over here and get the fix than to do the hard work of building the relationship. So we just keep running the shortcut and it destroys our soul. I must reserve sex for my spouse alone if I want any chance at a fulfilling relationship. I must reserve sex for my spouse alone, both physically and mentally, if I want any chance at a fulfilling relationship with them. Which brings us to the last couple of verses here of Jesus' statement. Look at verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Last point this morning is this. I need to rip lust from my heart and life. You have to rip lust from your heart and life. Jesus gets really extreme here. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Like, now, let's just have a little chat here for a moment before everybody comes back next week looking like pirates, okay, with eye patches and hooks and stuff, right? So just give me a second. What Jesus is using here is called hyperbole. It's intentional overstatement to make the point, right? He uses this actually a lot throughout his various teachings, He's trying to show us how serious this really is, right? Like this is major issue. You need to take extreme action to deal with this in your life. Like do whatever it takes to fight hard against lustful intent in your heart. That's what he's saying. And I think we have to take this even more seriously today maybe than the original audience because so much illicit material is around us 24-7. I, I can't even take my little girls to the mall without putting blinders on them because there's these Godzilla-sized posters of scantily clad people in the window of every store we walk by, right? Like, it's everywhere. And we have to be diligent, and we have to fight hard. And so how do we fight? I'm going to close. This is kind of the, the closing piece. I just want to give you some really basic strong application points of here's how we fight against lustful intent in our hearts. We have to do it on two fronts, okay? Number one, this is the most important one, love Jesus more. We have to love Jesus more. That means cultivating a fervent, growing, biblical relationship with Jesus Christ, right? That is where we have to start. It has to start with the gospel, with the relationship with Jesus. If we run past that to the other stuff I'm, I'm going to share with you later, it will not work. It might work short term, but it will not work long term. This is the only freedom you find is in Jesus. God looked down and he saw who we were. And he knew what we were going to do. And he knew how broken and how much we were going to twist this gift. And he said, you know what, I'm going to help you with that. 
I'm gonna rescue you, I'm gonna give you freedom in this. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to be born as a human, to walk a perfect, sinless life. I can't even imagine the fact that Jesus never had a lustful thought. That blows my mind, but he did. Perfect, sinless life, and he went to the cross, and he died a sinner's death to pay for your sins and to pay for my sins on my place, in my place on the cross. Bury my guilt and my shame, and he took it to the grave, and he was dead, and they buried him, and he, he rose to life three days later to show that he was God, to show that he had conquered sin, he had conquered death, and he now offers you grace and forgiveness and freedom from this. But it only comes as you pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ. It only comes as you pursue Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and changes your heart from the inside out. I can honestly tell you, I think that you have no hope of winning this battle without a relationship with Jesus. Because the more I love Jesus, the more I hate my sin. That's just the way it works. The closer I get to him, the more I love him, the more I pursue him, the more sin fades away. And it's not even, it's not even appealing anymore. It changes my heart. For I, don't even, I don't even desire that any longer. But it requires me loving him more. The more I love Jesus, the more I hate my sin. This is your best and biggest weapon. If you don't have this, it won't go anywhere. But then once you have that, there's a second front that's super helpful in this, and I just call it walking in wisdom. The second way to fight is to walk in wisdom, or oftentimes what I'll talk to with guys about is building fences, right? We need to build fences in our lives, things that are keeping us safe distance from the temptations that would lead us into sin. So I'm just gonna give you some really practical fences that I use, that I've given other guys, and that we've used with other people struggling with this that you can employ in your life to help you with some of these things. Number one, filters and tracking software. With the kind of access that we have to the internet and the kind of, the kind of stuff that's on the internet these days, there's just really no reason that you shouldn't have some level of tracking or internet filtering software on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer. If you have kids in the house, you definitely need this, right? It's just, a, it's just a normal fence to put up to say, hey, I'm gonna keep this stuff out of my eyes and out of my mind and away from my family. And there's tons of stuff you can buy. There's free stuff. There's all, like, you can get that. It's not that difficult to do. It's pretty easy, actually. So that's the first fence. The second fence I would put out there for you is called ground rules. Ground rules are preset boundaries. They're things that you say, I already know I'm not going here. I'm not doing this, all right? I'll give you just a few examples of some of the ground rules that, that I use and, and put together, so, or, or people have given to me. Um, never meet or eat alone with a member of the opposite sex that's not my spouse or immediate family. Okay? I don't meet with or eat a meal with someone of the opposite sex that's not my spouse or immediate family. This is, you know, just like basic stuff. And I know sometimes some of this, you're thinking, Mike, that's going to be hard. I, I have work meetings and I have this. I get it. I get it's hard. But if you want to 
really be running after Jesus on this. This is some stuff that's going to help you. Second one, don't stay overnight in a hotel alone. Don't stay in a hotel overnight alone by yourself. And again, I know some of you have to travel for work, and you're like, I don't know, if I, I don't know how that's going to work. Find the money, take your spouse, talk to your boss, get it. I don't know, if like, as much as you can. You might not always be able to do it, but as much as you can, keep a safeguard there. There's just too much temptation. Number three, don't allow media into your home that would be a temptation to you or your spouse. This could be magazines. This could even be catalogs, like for clothing stores. This could be uh, cable packages or certain channels that need to be blocked or unsubscribed from. This could be streaming services on your computer or Apple TV or whatever you've got. Another ground rule, don't friend or communicate with exes on social media. Don't do it. Like there's, there's no reason you should be doing that, all right? Like there's a reason that relationship burned to the ground, all right? Like just leave it in the ashes. They, they didn't get awesome all of a sudden, okay? Like just leave that where it was and just let it be, all right? If you do research on divorce cases today, 30% of divorce cases now cite social media as one of the contributing factors that led to divorce. These are just some basic ground rules. There's probably others, but these are some ones that, that we found helpful. Third walk in the wisdom thing is live in the light. Live an open life, right? Just, just be open about who you are and what you're doing. What's that look like? Number one, no secret or private accounts, right? You should not have any accounts that your spouse doesn't know about. Email accounts, social media accounts, bank accounts, memberships to anywhere, like none of that. And the, and the accounts you do have, they should have your password and your passcode to get into that stuff. Courtney has the passcode to my phone. She has the password to all my accounts. She can access any of my stuff at any time. It's not in the dark. She has full access to it. And the same with me with her. There's no reason there needs to be privacy there. Right? That is walking in the light. Um, do not have any private correspondence with members of the opposite sex. Notes, letters, emails, texts, Snapchats, Instagrams, Twitter, Facebook, all of that. Like, there's no reason you need to be having private correspondence with anybody of the opposite sex that's not your spouse. If you need to talk to somebody, put your spouse on it. You can, you can always add an extra person to the conversation, right? Let them see your stuff. Let them know what you're doing. The, the one that's most important, I think, in this area is the third one. No unaccounted for time. There is not a moment of a day where somebody doesn't know where I'm at and what I'm doing. Okay? There's software. We all have our phones with us 24-7 now, right? There's software you can put on your phone where your spouse or an accountability partner or somebody can know where you're at and what's going on at all times. Find my friends on the iPhone. Find my iPhone on the iPhone. All that works. We have that set up on our phones. We can see each other's phones at all times, right? For you crazy Android people, I'm sure there's something out there for you too. Like, you can go figure that out, Okay. Um, I don't know what that is, but there's something that can track and say, here's where they're at at all times. We have a calendar that we keep, right? She sees everything I'm doing all the time. She knows, I know her calendar, she knows my calendar. It's a shared calendar. We see everything that's scheduled on there. There shouldn't be a time where I'm like, I, where was your spouse on Friday night? I have no idea. I don't know what they were doing. That's not good, right? That's not walking in the light. 
These are just some things to help you. Again, these are fences. If you don't have the love Jesus thing going, these are only going to be temporary band-aids, right? But if you got that, this is going to be super helpful. And just so you singles don't feel like we're, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, neglecting you or ignoring you this morning, let me just give you a couple things specifically for singles this morning. I know a lot of the, the fences have been geared towards married people. Um, but for you singles, some of that applies, but here's some other stuff as well. Consider where you fish, right? Some of the places that singles like to go to meet other singles already have an atmosphere of lustful intent built into the place and the event. And if the first place you're meeting somebody and the first place you're cultivating a relationship with somebody is a place that already has this, this aura, if I can call it that, of lustful intent over it, that's already putting your relationship on a, a bad starting note. Are you tracking with me this morning? Right? Like that's just not, probably not a good place to find somebody. Right? So think about that. Number two, uh, consider where and how you date. If you, when you are seeing somebody, when you do have a relationship that you're trying to cultivate, you're trying to move towards marriage, and that's why you should be dating, by the way. If you're not moving towards marriage, you shouldn't be dating. Um, so this is what dating is for. And think about how you do it and where you do it, right? Um, I'm just saying like, you know, 11 o'clock at night, in the apartment, spooning on the couch, watching a movie alone with your, that's not going anywhere good, right? Like that's not setting you up for success. Let me just say it that way. Are you tracking with me, right? Like don't put yourself in that situation in the first place. Date in public, be with other people, like go out and for dinner and go to a movie and whatever, but like don't put yourselves in situations where it's already going to lead to something that you know you don't want to be there. So consider where and how you date. And then the third one, last one, is just hold the physical. Hold off on the physical. Once it enters the relationship, as I told you earlier in my own life, I can, I can tell you from personal experience, you can't focus on anything else. It takes complete precedent over everything else that's going on. And if you go there before you've developed the mental and the emotional and the spiritual side of the relationship, you'll get stuck and you likely never will. And for you single men in here, let me just say this to you specifically. That girl you're dating, that woman you're dating, that's one of God's daughters, right? He made her and he loves her and he's watching over her and you better respect and honor her the way that she is due as the daughter of the king. Because if you don't, you will suffer at the hands of the Lord, I promise you. So I'm sure some of you are thinking, right, like, Micah, some of that seems really extreme. Like, some of that seems like really over the top at this point. And, and I would agree, yes, it does. And yes, to our culture and society, absolutely it is. But here's what I would say to you. How important is your soul? How important is your spouse, current or future? In my book, those are the two most important things I have in this world. And so I need to do whatever it takes to protect them. And this is what Jesus is saying. Do whatever you got to do. Do whatever it takes. So some of you, when you leave here today, you need to take some extreme action in your life. You need to delete your social media accounts. Some of you need to get rid of the smartphone and go back to the flip phone. You're like, are you serious? Like, can you even get those anymore? Yes, you can right? And if that's, for, if that's too much of a temptation for you for a season, you need to do that, right? 
Some of you, you need to go and take, go home and take your computer and take it out of the basement or take it out of the office or the bedroom and put it in a public place in your home where everybody sees you when you use it. Some of you need to cancel HBO. You need to cancel Netflix because you can't watch it in a way that's respectful to the Lord. You're like, Mike, I need that. I, I need that to communicate, or I need that. It's going to be really inconvenient, or that's how I unwind, and that's how I... Okay, I get that. And Jesus is saying this to you today. Not Mike is saying this. Jesus is saying this to you today. It doesn't matter. It's not worth it. None of that is worth it if you lose your soul in the process. Take extreme action. Now, as I close, I just want to say this. Please hear me. This is my heart for you today. This message is not about guilt. It's not about shame. I'm not trying to twist your arm into some legalistic rules, all right? If that's what you're feeling and if that's what you're gonna function off of today, don't. That's just the devil trying to win, all right? Shame and guilt will not get you anywhere. It will last for a day or two and then it'll fade and then you're right back where the devil wants you to be, all right? Shame and guilt is not from the Lord. But if what you are feeling today, which I hope you're feeling today, what I prayed that you would feel today, is conviction by the Holy Spirit that moves you to love Jesus more and then to walk in wisdom in a way that follows after him. God loves you. Jesus loves you and he wants to save you. He wants to save your soul. He wants to give you freedom, real freedom in this area of your life. He does. And no matter what your past is, no matter what your failures are, no matter how you've already messed this up, I know you're feeling a lot of heaviness right now in your soul because of that. And that's okay. Don't cast it off. Use it. Use that conviction by the Holy Spirit to come and run to God's grace. Because he forgives and he showers us with grace and he cleans our hearts and he gives us a new chance. I'm gonna close with just my story. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you may have not. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. When I was a younger man, boy, I had a major issue with pornography. And when I was five, I was first exposed when I was five years old on the school bus. Uh, as I started to grow, several other got older boys in the neighborhood had magazines stashed in different places. And then eventually by the time I hit middle school, my dad had a home business, um, and the internet was just kind of coming into vogue at that point. And so he got internet to, for his business, and so I had full, unfiltered access to all kinds of stuff that most people didn't even know were, was out there yet. And that started me on a trajectory that, that plagued my life from middle school to high school, even into college, to the point that it became an obsession for me. Even in college, when I finally came back to Jesus, and got my life right with the Lord, I still kept this dark, hidden sin in my life. And nobody knew about it. And then I got married. And a month into our marriage, Courtney was on our laptop and found some things that I'd been looking at, and she confronted me about it. And I just bold-faced lied to her. Just completely denied it. Made up some crazy excuse. And it tore me up for a week. That's the first and last time I've ever lied to my wife. And the rest of the week, man, 
I was just, God was just tearing me apart because not only was my sin destroying me, now it was destroying her and it was destroying our relationship. And I was lying about it. And so I finally, in the, at the end of that week, I finally came clean with her about what it was and what the problem thing. And, and it, it, was, it, was, it was hard and it was hurtful and it hurt her and she was, she, and she had every right to be hurt. But that, God used that as a precipice to change, start changing my heart and my life on this issue. And so we immediately started putting those fences up, right? Started putting software on the computer, started getting accountability partners, started reading the books, started doing all the stuff. She would not let me be alone at all for like a year or two there. And that worked for a little bit. But then after a while, I would find a way to get around the fences and run back to this temptation that was wired into my brain. And I kept falling and failing and failing until finally, through much prayer and much study of God's word, he finally revealed to me, like, this is not going to get any better. You're not going to get freedom here until you love me more than you love your son. And when that clicked, I started getting freedom. It still wasn't immediate. I still had some failures after that, but they became less and less and less and less. So I can say that today, not that I'm perfect, and not that I don't, not, I don't still feel, feel temptation, I do. But I'm walking in freedom here because of Jesus Christ. And if you're dealing with this, you can give him a clap. That's good for the Lord. And if this is your story, I want you to know that it's hard stuff and it's bad stuff, but there can be freedom. There is hope. God can and will deliver you from this if you will run to him, if you will love him more than you love your sin. I must love Jesus more than I love my sin to rip lust from my life. That's the only way it's gonna happen. So, as we pull together today, let me just kind of circle back to the opening point. This is all for God to get you to where he designed you to be, which is deep intimacy with your spouse. Deep intimacy with my spouse requires amputating, cutting off, getting rid of extreme action, lust from my life. And so I don't know what that looks like for you today, but I just want you to kind of think on that for a second here. Just take that question, like, what's it look like for you to pluck your eye out, right? You personally, what's it look like for you to cut your hand off today in terms of lust? What extreme action do you need to take to get more freedom in this area with Jesus Christ? I've shared very open and honestly with you today my story. That wasn't to, to impress you, that wasn't to shock you or repulse you, That was just to give you testimony that God can and will do it, right? That there is hope and there is grace and there is freedom in Jesus Christ. And I wanna call you to that today. And some of you, you need to run to him in this. Like right now, as we get ready to pray, you need to pray and repent and confess and ask Jesus to do this in your life and in your heart. And then once you do that, you also need to tell someone you definitely need to tell your spouse, right? 
And you probably also need to tell a small group leader or a Christian brother or sister that can help walk through this with you. Because Satan will try to convince you that otherwise, and he'll try to derail you. You need somebody there with you walking, man. And it will be hard, and there will be consequences and pain and hurt. There will be. I'm not even going to try to candy coat it for you. But small-term pain, short-term pain is worth the long-term victory. Okay? So you need to do this. You need to pray. You need to tell someone. And if you are in this room today, and this is a major issue in your life, as it was in mine, and you need some extra help to get freedom in this, I'm going to put an email address on the screen right now that we created just for this purpose. I want you to write it on your paper. Write it on your paper right now. And if you're struggling in this area, I want you to send an email to this email address this week. This will be completely confidential, right? And we will take this and we will pair you with somebody, another Christian brother or sister who will confidentially walk with you through this and help you get freedom in this area. You can have it. You can have it. I promise you, you can. But it's only through Jesus. Stand with me. Let's pray. Let's respond to him right now and ask him to give us freedom in this area, small or big, whatever you need. And let's seek him together. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, God, and we just bow our heads before you, Lord. We, we recognize, Lord, how how unworthy we are to stand before you in so many ways. But Father, we know that you are the all-powerful, almighty, sovereign God of the universe, and you can deliver us from anything in our lives. So please hear our cries. Lord, hear us today. Deliver us from lustful hearts. Give us freedom to live in the fullness of what you created us for. We know that this only comes through Jesus Christ. So please stir our affections. Stir our affections more and more for him that we may love him more and love our sin less. Father God, heal us today. Heal our hearts, heal our souls as we return to you in repentance from sexual sin and we seek your grace. Lord, we're coming to you, broken sinners, asking to be healed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.